Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Doug Stewart from LibertarianChristians.com, now the Libertarian Christian Institute. With me today is the founder, Norman Horn, board member Jason Rink, and our new executive director, Nick Gausling. Today, Nick's going to lead a discussion about the history and theology of anarchism and minarchism within Christianity and political thought. Nick, this is quite the issue for Christian libertarians to discuss. Yeah, Doug, it, it certainly is. You know, this has been a contentious issue throughout church history, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. Uh, some of the different views that Christians have had on this particular matter uh, throughout the history of the church. And we'll also dive into discussion of some of the relevant uh, scriptural texts and issues in theology that, uh, that, that touch on, on this matter. And, you know, we're not necessarily going to resolve it today, but hopefully we'll, we'll have some good discussion and be able to sort of spark some additional dialogue, just get people thinking about uh, about these sorts of things. So it's, it's great to be with all you guys here today. So, you know, when we think about what have Christians historically thought about the issue of the state, uh, we can really see some broad shifts throughout the different periods in, in the history of the church, right? So when you go back to the ancient church and you look at the church fathers, or what's sometimes called the uh, patristic era, of church history, you'll find that they were not very traditionally political at at all, and a, I mean, part of that is because they were uh, on the out and outs with the with the state. So Christians were certainly not a an accepted uh, religion for the first several centuries of church history. And that's not to say that they were persecuted at all times. There were different periods of persecution, and the first empire-wide persecution didn't happen until much later. Uh, but nevertheless, they certainly were not uh, cozy with the state like we think of much of Christians today. And when you go back and you look at their writings and the way they talked about the kingdom of God, what the church is, what their role was, who Christ is, uh, they they pretty much just didn't see any place for allying with the state. Uh, they understood that God was was there, he was sovereign over the state and over all the affairs of the nations, but that it wasn't really the church's place to use the state to accomplish uh, God's will uh, or otherwise, you know, <laughs> uh, batter down their the, the church's enemies. So... When you really look at those those early Christians for the first three centuries or so, um, they they were very much an anti-state kind of kind of group, and that really began to change around the time of the Emperor Constantine. So, regardless of whether or not we think Constantine's uh, conversion to Christianity was authentic, uh, it was a a watershed moment in the history of, of the church. And a number of people who had kind of belonged to that earlier camp 
begin to see compromise in the church after the time of Constantine, because all of a sudden Christians were in positions of state power. They were becoming much more influential in in society because of the state, because of the alliance to the Roman Empire. And a number of people, as a result of that, uh, they, they basically seceded from society. They went off to live as hermits in the desert. And these are the first monks. This is where the monastic movement uh, actually came from. It was these early Christians who were uncomfortable with the compromise of the church and state alliance that happened around the time of Constantine. And throughout the uh, Middle Ages, that continued in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the monasteries persisted through the Middle Ages, uh, but the institutional church grew in, in power and, and influence, and there were oftentimes conflicts between the institutional church and the various governments of Western Europe. And there, but there were groups within the church that were still trying to get back to that sort of earlier patristic uh, purity, if you will. And, and one group that comes to mind is the Waldensians, uh, named after their, their founder, Peter Waldo. And they went off into the mountains, I, I believe it was the Swiss Alps, uh, probably around the 11th or, or 12th century, basically to just get away from the, the corruption of the, the sort of church-state worldly alliance. And uh, later, actually, when the Reformation happened, the Waldensians ultimately uh, adopted Reformation theology. They, they became Protestants. And then around the time of the Reformation, we had uh, another split on this issue. So, uh, the most popular and well-known reformers are sometimes called the magisterial reformers. So, this is Luther, Zwingli, uh, Knox, Calvin, and they really uh, saw a, a heavy role for, for the state in society. And when you look at the documents uh, that, that came out of the Reformation and then, and then later the English Reformation, the Puritans, uh, like the Westminster Confession, you see a, a large role for the state uh, in, these, in these doctrines and, and confessions. In fact, the, the Westminster Assembly, which composed the Westminster Confession, did it under the direction and auspices of the English Parliament when it was controlled by by the Puritans around the time of Oliver Cromwell and the English Civil War against the Catholic King. So, this, these were the bulk of your, of your reformers, the magisterial reformers, but there was also another group, which we sometimes call the radical reformers, and these were your Anabaptists, and from them later came groups like the Mennonites and, and the Amish over the centuries later. <laughs> and the, uh, the Anabaptists they very they took a very opposite tact to the magisterial reformers. They they were very much like that first few centuries of Christians, and they basically wanted to secede out of uh, traditional church-state alliance in society. And they did they didn't want to impose their will on anybody. They kind of just wanted to be left alone. Uh, but for that, they were persecuted. Because they were seen as subversives, uh, they were seen as undermining the very fabric of society by not wanting to go along with uh, with the state, essentially. 
And then as we move into the Great Awakening periods, the Enlightenment, the modern era, uh, we, we start to see even more shift in, in thought. Uh, so around the, the 19th century, actually, one very well-known preacher, theologian, uh, Christian leader who stands out in this regard very interestingly, is uh, Charles Hedden Spurgeon from England. And uh, Spurgeon was Reformed Baptist, but when you actually look at his, his work, his, his sermons, of which there are prolific copies, um, they are very anti-war, very anti-state in a lot of ways. Um, in, in some senses, it, he does come off as kind of a economic progressive, but it's it's not in the way that you might think of in in the contemporary sense. Uh, so really, compared to other people from that era and and the re- the reform tradition, really, uh, Spurgeon really stands out on this front. And I think that's notable because he is one of the most well known Christian preachers of all time. And yet, almost nobody talks about what did he think about war and what did he think about government. Um. And then as we kind of move a little bit further along, uh, around the, the turn of the 20th century, very influential in this space was Leo Tolstoy, who everyone kind of knows as, as, an, as an author, but he, he did write on Christianity and anarchy, and specifically in the, in the context of uh, violence. <laughs> and Tolstoy... Uh, you know, he, he isn't exactly orthodox in his view of things like uh, the Trinity. And so, you know, we can argue over whether or not he's, he should even be considered Christian in that regard. But nevertheless, it shows a, a beginning of a shift in Christian thought. Uh, other authors on this point throughout the 20th century that are worth noting are Jacques Ellul, who is actually a sociologist, uh, but wrote a lot on theology as well. Uh, Vern Eller, uh, and then more contemporary, uh, Walter Wink, who died a couple years ago, kind of is associated with the progressive side of things, but we, really when you read his work, uh, it is very uh, sort of anarchistic and anti-state. And then more contemporary authors, e- even who are still active today, uh, would be Gregory Boyd has written a book that you know we reference here many times, uh, "Myth of a Christian Nation." We it's been referenced in a number of of LCI uh, publications, and it is a profound had a profound impact, I think, on a lot of people affiliated with our organization. Um, and then also from the more left wing kind of side of it, but still still taking a different approach, would be like Shane Claiborne who wrote a book called Jesus for President, and the economics are kind of left-leaning, but the fundamental theology of it is very, very much anti-state and fostering this idea of another kingdom. And so, that sort of brings us to our present discussion, because, you know, the, the church as it is today in the Western world uh, is is overwhelmingly not not libertarian, right? I mean, but we are moving in that direction, uh, and and I've certainly been encouraged by seeing more and more libertarian Christians uh, with each passing year. But the consensus 
in Western Christian theology really seems to be uh, still very statist. You know, you on the on the progressive left side, you have the economic statists who think that Christianity should uh, be all about high taxes and lots of regulation because we need to make things right for the poor. Uh, and of course, Christianity, you know, does teach us to love and care for the poor, but we do it through charity. We do it through the church. We don't do it through uh, the state. And then on the other side, you have the more quote-unquote conservative or neoconservative or religious right kind of approach, uh, which wants to use the state to enforce a certain ethical code. Uh, and the ethics may, may or, or may not be right, but I mean, the point is they want to use the state to get it. Uh, and then also to uh, typically have a very aggressive foreign policy, big military empire, and, and somebody who really comes to mind on this front who who otherwise is, is a great exegete and a great thinker, uh, but I think on this particular issue is just terrible, is Wayne Grudem, who wrote a whole book called Politics, uh, in which he sort of makes this argument. And it's just really, really atrocious uh, from an otherwise godly and, and very intelligent man. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, throughout Christian history, we've sort of seen a, a very uh, – profound and enduring line of thought uh, that has challenged the status quo on this issue. So, unfortunately, for the last 1,700 years, since the time of Constantine, the consensus has been very statist, but there's always been different groups, different people uh, challenging that. Not always from a consistently pro-liberty perspective, but nevertheless, uh, just calling into question this whole idea of should Christians be allying uh, with the state? Should Christians use the state uh, to accomplish God's will in any way? And, and if so, to what extent and how? And that really is the, the issue that we're discussing here uh, today. So, you know, with that, uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to do is, is talk a little bit about the, the theology of the, the minarchist position, the anarchist position, um, and and then I mean maybe we'll even talk about some of the uh, the theology that statists might you might use to justify their their positions. Um, so, you know, when when we're thinking, let's start with with minarchism. When we're thinking about if you're going to argue uh, for a small government position uh, from from Christian theology. Uh, you know, there, there's different areas that, that might be, be brought up here. Some people might reference like the Old Testament law and say that is sort of a, a blueprint for how we should run society. And that, that could be a, typically associated with a, a theonomic view. Um, and there's others who simply look at, at the New Testament passages like Romans 13, First uh, Peter chapter 2, First Timothy chapter 2, and they say, you know, well, uh, there is a role for the state in in society, and Christians, you know, being part of the world, we're called to be good stewards, uh, we're called to be responsible uh, and, and salt and light in the world. Uh, and so they would, you know, then argue that Christians have a have a role there, and government has a role, and the 
the church's role and government's role are are different, but they're both ordained by by God. So uh, I'd I'd like to get your guys's uh, thoughts on that. So Norm, do you want to maybe jump in here and and what do you think about that? Yeah, thanks, Nick. The Underlying issue, I think that is that we have to sort of begin with when we talk about anarchism and minarchism, uh, is really what is the underlying philosophy? What we say as libertarians is the most important aspect of our political theory is the non-aggression principle, and that is to basically say that that you have uh, the you you are entitled to or you have the right to not be aggressed against by other people so long as you are acting. In a peaceful manner, uh, aggression is prohibited in a free society. is is the basic thesis, and that is something that we would generally say is affirmed uh, through evident scripture uh, from from the very beginning up to the end of the Bible, and also through Christian history and in the explication of theology by our by our forebears uh, from from the Old Testament to the present. And so in many respects, I would say that that one of the reasons why we need to begin with that is that oftentimes when Christians try and approach the issue of the state uh, from from a biblical perspective, they kind of go about it the wrong way. It's, it's in a sense when you go with it, it was sort of this, I hesitate to call it a naive reading because they're not really being naive, but it's sort of a plain Oh, just whatever, what are just the basics of what do the words say on the page? You can kind of get into a little bit of a wrongheaded view about where this, where is the state going? What is its origin? How does it function in society? Instead of going to an, a sort of evident reason position from the basics about what, what, what is ethics? Why, uh, why should humans behave in a certain way versus a different way? The, the Christian statist um, is essentially saying oftentimes uh, that this, the state is there um, in order to provide order, in order to provide punishment, in order to provide for law and all of these various things, um, but not really asking like, well, how do those things, what are the origin of those things in the first place? Uh, and, and often they just they, they, will, they can kind of take the, those plain uh, face value readings of scripture and, and unfortunately I think just get into a, a bit of a, uh, a mental fix. Uh, and so hopefully what we can do as Christian libertarians is kind of point out some of the inconsistencies in how people have treated those, those passages of scripture and, and dealt with these issues over time and reorient ourselves around a more fundamental uh, theological idea that violence is prohibited uh, against others. You know, it's except in, except in response, and even that is in a very limited sense oftentimes. So we need to be very careful when we read scripture um, to really kind of un- understand where where things are heading from from the very beginning. Yeah, those are some great points there. Uh, so as far as these specific passages, you know, some of them that, that I had mentioned earlier that are often brought up, of course, we all know Romans 13 is kind of the go-to passage on this issue that's often cited. Uh, you know, 1 Peter 2 uh, talks about being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and it lists off the, the emperor, the governor, etc. First uh, Timothy 2 talks about uh, praying for, for leaders and, and people in high places. So, how do we, how do we handle those uh, verses? And, you know, Jason, maybe you want to jump in on this. What, what is your 
sort of exegesis analysis on on these types of passages? Well, um, you know, I, I tend to have a little more of a a broad perspective when I sort of look at this whole issue, first of all. Meaning, I'm not, uh, I'm not as, I don't tend to get in the weeds as much about, like, the history of this type of thinking, though I've read, you know, a number of those authors that you've mentioned, and I've looked at the scriptures that, you know, support, you know, both statist and that, that seem to support or are used to, to support the more, like, statist or government-accepting uh, positions, as well as the ones that would tend to support, you know, our position, which is from an anarchist or minarchist libertarian position. Um, and so, you know, first of all, the, the way I really like to approach it is, you know, from the standpoint of saying, okay, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of the nature of God. Like, he's the embodiment of who God is in human form. The the vehicle that we can we can relate to, you know. So Jesus carried out his life. It's recorded in the Gospels, and and when you look at the life of Jesus and and start from that place and see what he has to say and how he dealt with the issues of government and power and how what he was uh, promoting from the standpoint of what the kingdom of God is, you know, first of all, you're struck with the fact that it's, it is revolutionary and political in that he came to this earth and, you know, was, was crucified by the power that be and by the power structure and that he was a threat to the power structure, meaning the power structure the religious power structure and the political power structure. And he wasn't a threat to it because he sought to uh, bring in the kingdom by force and through the sword and through setting himself up as a king or an emperor, but instead, you know, said that his kingdom would, would come and would dominate evil and would, would, take over the world and would redeem mankind through the power of love and through the power of forgiveness and redemption and, and everything that, that happened there. And so I, I think from like the, the largest perspective, seeing that Jesus was, was not, didn't take up uh, a violent, coercive political cause, didn't seek to achieve any of his aims through, uh, through coercive or political means is is the is square one. And then moving through the rest of the scripture, and again, this is just how I I sort of started coming to these realizations. And and so when I get to things such as Romans 13, where that's uh, you know the passage that everybody likes to go to and talk about government is able to do all this stuff and we're supposed to obey them and that's all there is to it and God's sovereign and, you know, that sort of thing. I think taking a step back and examining what's really going on there and then applying it to our own circumstances um, becomes very enlightening. And so, you know, when I uh, first 
took took on Romans 13 and the standpoint of government and examined what it said there, I started to ask questions. Uh, I started to ask myself, okay, well, if God has ordained the government in the United States, what kind of government did he ordain? And that led me down the road of like exploring, you know, the constitutional republic and the founding of the government and, and recognizing that there was a very uh, federalist um, type of design in that and that many of the uh, problems that we see in government right now and in politics right now is actually a result of you know government agents who are the employees of the people uh, sort of disregarding the uh, employee manual, you know, the Constitution in this case. If you're gonna if you're gonna plant your flag on this idea that God has ordained the government in the United States, you know, well then it's a constitutional republic with a constitution, and it's not a kingdom, and it's not an emperor, and it's not a government where the executive branch should be able to do all sorts of things beyond that limited scope, and where Congress and the Senate should do all these things beyond that limited scope, and where the the Supreme Court can legislate in ways that were never intended by the founders. And so, you know, in this in this little rant that that I'm going on, or sort of this maybe going circular around what you're talking about, is that what I started to find out was, you know, as I explored Romans 13 and other passages, was I was like, wow, there's an alternate perspective here, um, based on my presuppositions. And when I had presuppositions about uh, the relationship between um, the church and power and Christians and power and Christians and government, my original presuppositions before I embraced libertarianism and then essentially I would say I'm, a, uh, I'm an apologetic anarchist uh, or I, you know, I like to clarify my anarchism. Um, but um, that journey had to happen first by examining those presuppositions, which were inherently statist. Uh, I did have some aspects of government worship and uh, feeling like I had a Christian duty of fidelity to my government in, in condoning its actions and being a good patriot. And, and once I looked at the life of Jesus and saw these sort of, these revolutionary tendencies and the ways that he lived and carried out his ministry, and then as that trans, you know, went through the book of Acts with the apostles, that changed my presuppositions. And then I was able to revisit a passage like Romans 13 and be like, wait a minute, the politicians who are elected, they're actually operating outside of God's authority. They're actually, they're lawbreakers. They're not good. And uh, so, you know, and that, then that led me to other questions and, and um, you know, and, we, and then some of those, some of those conclusions might be a little bit controversial. We might even uh, disagree with them on here. Um, all the way up to the point where, uh, you know, I believe that the teaching of Romans 13 could lead someone to believe that, uh, yes, government is ordained of God, but those in elected office, if they don't obey or operate within the confines of their constitutional limits, then their power is illegitimate, and it can be um, opposed with 
a clear clear conscience and not even a clear conscience, but uh, with a duty to oppose that power. And yet they still do bear the sword. And so those criminals who operate in the government and in politics, um, they can still throw me in jail or execute me. Uh, just like Jesus, um, not th- not that it would be Jesus, but you know they executed him wrongly uh, when he committed no crime. He was in the right, and so um, at the end of the day, I think when we explore this topic, what we find is that um, there are a lot of opportunities to exercise our Christian faith and duty in opposing uh, the actions of government. And yet doing so, we need to be prepared to uh, pay the price that uh, might come from that, uh, though we might be in the right. Um, I don't even know if I answered any of your questions, uh, but that, that was uh, what was bubbling up in my, my mind there. Yeah, you know, you actually brought up a ton of great stuff just now. And when we think about Romans 13, you know, I think so often people just lose the context. You know, they they kind of imagine that these chapter verse breaks are intrinsically part of the text, even though they're not. And so they pick up at 13.1 as though Paul is just beginning some brand new subject that has nothing to do with what he just said in chapter 12. When you look at the end of chapter 12, it's all about uh, loving your enemy, serving your neighbor, overcoming evil with good. Uh, And then he flows into chapter 13 and talks about uh, the state being used by God as an instrument of his wrath. But in the previous chapter, he just told Christians not to do those things. And so it's kind of like there's there's this idea that God is sovereign over the whole process, but what Christians are to do and what God uses other entities to do are not necessarily the uh, the same thing. However, you know, if we are going to acknowledge, uh, I mean, and not not to say this is my position or anybody here's position, but if we are going to say, like you said, that uh, you know we we are going to have some type of government, some type of limited government, if if that is somebody's position, uh, the the issue <coughs> the issue is um, exactly what kind of government should it be? And in the United States, at least, we have the the Constitution. And so you had brought up the Founding Fathers earlier, and I think you're totally on point with that. Uh, The Founding Fathers would be disgusted with what has become of of this country, with central banking, with the military empire, with the massive bureaucratic superstate, with taxes far beyond anything that the colonists ever had to to deal with. This is totally unlike what they uh, intended. And so, if the Constitution, and that is a, a propositional if, if the Constitution is going to be deemed as legitimate and we're going to ethically say it's okay to have some type of state, then the government we have isn't even obeying that, that ordained law and therefore is violating uh, the ordinance of God in that case. Although, and that's just if you're going to, if you're going to adopt the monarchist position. But Wait, I, I, I wanted to, let me chime in just real quick on your point, because I, I also just wanted to make another point is that, you know, if, 
and and I'm I'm my my thought process originates from the thought process of somebody I feel like I'm often trying to communicate with on this idea who believes that we have some sort of fidelity to the state uh, and you know this sort of patriotic right wing Christian duty those types of people that I I tend to you know communicate with or run into more on this but you know the the founding of this country happened from revolution so it's sort of like well okay so it was cool for the founders to rebel against the crown and they won victory in that so like did god or was god pleased with the victory of the colonies over the crown and getting independence or not okay and then, oh, if he was, then okay, he ordained this this government. Great, I'll buy that. Well, then, at what point is it okay for us to rebel against that government if maybe it looks a lot like the crown uh, did to the founders? So it's sort of like there, there's actually sort of a catch in here because when you start going down this road of which government was ordained of God and how government ordains how God ordains governments and where and it even flows into when we start talking about uh, being at war in the Middle East you know it's like okay well you know people who are under Saddam Hussein you know well that's the government that God put over them and and then God put this government over us so whose side is God on in, in this conflict and of course, Many Americans always say, well, us, of course, God's on our side, and everybody thinks God's on their side. So I, very few people really just dive into the complexity of some of these issues uh, and sort of just, they, they, don't, they don't really dig deeper into, like you said, the context and then American history and really even understanding anything about how our government's supposed to work. And... Um, so anyway, that's that's just something that came up when you were bring, when you were talking about that. I just kind of wanted to step in there. Jason, it sounds like you're uncovering something that a lot of um, Christians can sort of think about and ponder through their maybe some people would call it their certainty of whatever it is they think Romans 13 says, and maybe they are convicted that <clears throat> you know we're supposed to obey the government at whatever level. The problem is it if we really think through, well, what about if, if that's God's truth and God wants everyone to submit to all authority and what does that say to the person living in 1930s Germany? What does it say to the people living under Saddam Hussein? Does that really only apply to us in a, you know, first world nation who have relatively large swaths of freedom as much as we're going to, many times in this podcast talk about how, how little freedoms we have. I mean, for, for crying out loud, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing pretty well here. Um, so when you think about applying that in different contexts, you, it makes you think, Hmm, maybe, maybe it's not quite that cut and dry. And, you know, one of the, one of the things I think we we're talking about hermeneutics and, and just theology a little bit earlier is the Bible, the Bible's not a user manual, so you're not going to look up in the index and, you know, of like even the largest, thickest Bible and find out what does God think about the state? What does God think about anarchism? What does God think about libertarianism? What does God think of Donald Trump? You know, um, you know you're not going to find those kinds of answers. 
And so we have to be very careful in approaching the Bible in a way that it becomes our little user manual and we look up a quote at the top of, you know, Paul's 13th blog post to the Romans and we start at the top, you know, line, be subject to all the governing authorities or however you want to translate that. That's not what Paul was doing. Jason, I like what you said about Jesus being the square one. We can cherry pick verses all day long and I don't think that's necessarily a wrong a wrong-headed way of doing it. We just have to do it in a way that goes with the flow of the text, with the flow of the entire scripture. Because we can make the Bible say anything we want it to. Almost anything we want it to. Maybe not anything. No Christian today is going to say, is going to deny the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of denominations that have varying differences on minor texts. And there are a few major, major, majors that no one really disagrees on. For the most part, we all see Jesus as central. And then there's a lot of verses that we want to take our way. We want to read Romans 13 as saying what we think it should say. We want to read, or, or if you're on the left, you want to read Matthew 25 saying that we have to have, um, you know, governments caring for the poor. Um, you know, you can read these things in, in so many ways. And when we, we could get on here and talk with 30 different people who have different views, who have very well-supported reasons for having those views and interpretations on any particular passage. So this is, this is a debate or a discussion and that is not going to be settled by my verses versus your verses. It's going to be settled through a lot longer conversation that deals with where is the text of Scripture going. And, you know, back to Jason's main point and what I kind of elaborated on a little bit in my way is, you know, Jesus is square one. I think it says volumes. It doesn't mean that you have to be a libertarian like we are, but I think it speaks volumes that when Jesus comes to earth, it's at a specific time where the Roman Empire was very dominant, and Jesus is Lord, is a phrase that was designated to Caesar. And it also speaks volumes that Jesus did not in any specific way, and this is a little argument from silence to some extent, but Jesus did not in any specific way advocate using the Roman government to advocate for the things that we know we would call the ethics of Jesus. You know, living the Sermon on the Mount, you might, you might get away with applying, you probably can't apply it, now that I'm thinking out loud, you probably can't apply it to uh, the, the state of Israel or Israel as a, as a nation, uh, even under domination. But they were God's people. They weren't everybody. That was God, that was Jesus's expectation of them, and it was them their job to be the light of the world, which they failed to do, which is what Jesus did. But you know, there, I don't know. It just for me when I read when I read the Gospels and I see what Jesus is saying, you know, all those principles are great. What what makes the leap really tough for me is why does this have to why does this have to apply to a state? that requires other people who otherwise don't care what Jesus says to go along with. Yeah, those are some really great points that both of you guys brought up there. Thanks for that, Doug. Uh, you know, one of the things that you both kind of touched on in in various ways is this idea of what is the narrative of, of the Bible? Like, what is the actual story that is portrayed uh, in, in the person of Jesus, in the work of Jesus, and throughout the, the entire biblical text, really pointing up to Jesus. And then from that, uh, we, as the church, his people, 
what are we supposed to do with that? What does that mean for us as living as, as Christians in 21st century uh, America? So when we think about this whole idea of what's sometimes called narrative theology or or Christotelic hermeneutic or Christocentric hermeneutic, different ways of, of looking at it from different thinkers to be sure, but there's this whole kind of idea that we have to look at what is the overarching meta-narrative or story of the biblical text. Because like you said, Doug, the Bible is not like a cookbook. It's not an instruction manual in the sense that you can just open it up and get an exact answer to in any question, like like a textbook. I mean, that's not what it is. More, more than anything else, it is a story. It's a story that's true, but it's a story about God. It's a story about man, and it's a story about uh, man's relation to God. So it tells us things about who God is, who we are, uh, and what he expects of us, and it does that through through the narrative. Well, and so and I, I think... Sorry, I was, I was going to say that it doesn't exhaustively tell us all those things in, in the least anyway. Like sure. It, it tells yeah. us about man's relationship with God, uh, but it doesn't tell us everything about it. It tells us about our relationship with each other, but it doesn't tell us everything about it. There's, there's some, ex, I would say, extrapolation. There's some interpretation, extrapolation, and application that, that is involved in learning how to live together and love God and love neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the the analogies or, or metaphors or whatever you want to call it that uh, I think is really helpful here actually comes from N.T. Wright when he's talking about how to think about how to think about the Bible. And he says, you can think of it kind of like a, a five-act play. And so, act one, you have man in the Garden of Eden. Uh, act two, you have the fall. Act three, you have Israel in the Old Testament. Act four, you have Christ and the incarnation and his earthly ministry up through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. And then now we, the church, are living in Act five. And we don't, we don't have a script for that, but we have the previous four acts that tell us where we came from. And from that, uh, according to Wright, God says we're supposed to improvise where we're going. And on the basis of that, I mean, no, and again, I'm borrowing from right here. He says, no Christian is free to play a, in a manner that is inconsistent with what has come before. So, in other words, when we're thinking about the Bible and the story of the Bible and how it shapes us as the church, uh, we, we need to live and act and apply it in a way that is consistent with that story and who God is and what he expects of us and what he's revealed to us without expecting that we're going to have an exact textbook answer to every issue. And I think a lot of a lot of contemporary Christians mishandle the text because they're expecting it to to be the latter when it's really uh, the former. One of one of the things that I think of, and maybe this is just me being a little more postmodern than I ought to be, but um, you know, you would talk about the overarching narrative of the scripture and things like that. You know, you don't even have to agree upon what is the overarching narrative of the scripture. Because there are so many different themes, and maybe you could think of it like a tapestry. There's there's so many different threads that you can pull on 
and see throughout scripture. I think that was what Jason was thinking of earlier. You know, he was reading scripture and he started seeing all these anti-state themes. Maybe it was the previous episode. You know, you, you read the scripture and you're like, wow, this is, this is a major thing. It may not be the thing, but it's a major theme in scripture how God's God is very much against the domination of people. Yeah, I, I mean, just a lot of a lot of great points made throughout all of this, and just um, I think this idea of of I guess what I would say are like first principles, right? And how important sort of the the worldview that you have drives what you believe. And, you know, most Christians that you would talk to have a line at which they would say, oh, if the government did that, then Christians should not stand for it. Here's, here's what I would die for. You're basically saying everybody has a threshold to where civil disobedience is a must. Absolutely. But the it's because it's because we don't often take and reconsider our presuppositions and and our existing worldview to where that line might be moved back and so the real question we have to we have to go back and we say well if 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 government is then it becomes illegitimate right if it says okay you can't read the bible and pray uh, in public. And then we're like, we've even got examples of civil disobedience of that, right? In the Old Testament and everything. And so, you know, that's something we can get behind. But for, for some reason, people aren't, aren't interested in maybe saying, well, maybe you would, maybe you would oppose government prior to that. And really, the, just asking the initial question of whether government is legitimate at all, even being open to the idea that maybe government itself isn't legitimate that a christian doesn't have to give just general obedience to government because it's government and i i think um you know mike meharry over at godarchy uh brought this interesting thing to my attention i'd never seen this before but he's got an article over there where he talks about how when jesus was presented before the nation of Israel, and they rejected him, and they said, crucify him and give us Barabbas, that when you really look into what Barabbas was, he was an insurrectionist and, you know, was essentially a the personification of political resistance against Rome. But really, he was the personification of coercion and politics as a way versus the way of peace. Uh, it's it's interesting, and so you've got this this idea that you know what what I'm getting at is is Christians tend to look at the the Old Testament or the New Testament and the Old Testament tend to look at it. Modern Christians tend to say, "Oh boy, we'd never do that, or we'd never be like that. We'd never make the same mistakes that the nation of Israel is. We would yeah, never right. we'd never reject Jesus for Barabbas." But really, what modern Christians are doing is they're embracing the way of politics and coercion to try to bring forth the kingdom of God and rejecting the way of, of peace and nonviolence and non-coercion 
which is what Jesus represents. So in a way, modern Christians are every day choosing Barabbas over Jesus in the way that they seek to get their kingdom of God aims accomplished in the world. And that's why I say, look, our first principle should be whether coercion is legitimate, whether violence is legitimate, or whether peace and love is is the first principle. And so once we back it up that far and say, well, wait a minute, it's not whether government's legitimate, because that word's tough to get through with that. Well, is coercion and violence legitimate? Let's talk about that, because that's the very embodiment of what government is. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is we need to evaluate government based on the standards that we evaluate anything. Like, why Why be... Because think about it. Most most leftists or leftist Christians are either pacifists or almost pacifists. But somehow they give a pass to the state and they're out is Romans 13. That doesn't follow for me. Um, because, you know, you can... You know, whatever your view is on government, whether it's from the progressive left or whether it's from even people on the right, no one believes government ought to do everything. No one believes government. Well, and, and so at that point, it becomes, well, is government legitimate? It doesn't mean, I mean, to some extent, you don't even have to become a, a, an anarchist and say, well, the government is uh, illegitimate in every and all aspects of life. All you have to do is ask yourself, well, is the government the legitimate place to be doing X, Y, and Z? Well, and to be clear, you take them one the by, left you and take the them right, one by one. The left and the right give passes to thinking the government should do just certain different things about uh, accomplishing the kingdom of God. So on the left, they like to look to government and say, well, we're going to look to the government to you know, care for the poor and the least of these, that's where the government's going to come in. So they look to coercion and violence to somehow, you know, achieve caring for the poor and the least of these among us. And that's where they give the pass. And then those on the right, it tends to be in areas of uh, police, law enforcement. Um, It tends to be in moral issues where it's like, well, we're going to give a pass to government coercion and violence to achieve this end of the kingdom of God, which is an end of the kingdom of God, but, you know, government is legitimate to operate in this way. This is why it is something we've emphasized time and time and time again at libertarianchristians.com, LCI, for years, this idea that humans are all on the same moral plane, the same moral plane field together. That there is no special dispensation if you wear a government uniform or you hold some title of office. And it doesn't matter whether it's even government or whether you're the CEO of a company. It doesn't matter what structure that you're in, in this case. You are all held to the same moral standard. Jason Rank, Doug Doug Stewart, Nick Gausling, and Norman Horn are all held to the same moral standard. And it doesn't matter whether I'm wearing an army uniform and flying an F-16 or something like that, uh, that doesn't give me a special dispensation to initiate violence against somebody else. The, the same moral standard applies. And if we, if we actually believe that and carry that to its conclusion, then certain things about the way society operates must be questioned. 
Yeah, that's a really phenomenal point there, Norm. You know, I mean, it, it kind of begs questions like, well, if it's illegitimate for the four of us uh, on this podcast to get together and, you know, go rob some people at gunpoint, uh, because that would just be, uh, it would be armed robbery, you know, it, 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 everyone would acknowledge, of course, that's, that's wrong. But why is it that if there's a large enough group of people that do the same thing to an entire nation, all of a sudden they become the new state, right? So, I mean, that's how, even when you read the City of God, Augustine was talking about this uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago in, in the very early church uh, about how uh, he tells a story, actually, about a pirate who is arrested by Alexander the Great. And Alexander hauls the pirate in and says, you know, what do you think gives you the right to take control of the oceans with your banditry? And the pirate responds, why is it that when I do this on the oceans, you call me a bandit? But when you do it to the entire earth, you get to call yourself the emperor. So it's this exact idea that there's somehow a different moral standard, a different ethical standard um, when you are in a government position, uh, but there's just no Christian theological biblical basis uh, for for thinking that. We're all under the, the rule of the one true king, uh, Jesus Christ. And, you know, the, you, you guys both, uh, Doug and Jason, you touched on, on a, a point that we're going to be covering in a future episode, this whole idea of violence and nonviolence, pacifism, uh, how that all sort of ties into Christian theology. I, I think, you know, you can be an anarchist and not be a pacifist or not be nonviolent, but you really can't consistently be uh, a pacifist and not be an anarchist. Uh, and yet a lot of people on the left seem to identify that way, on the Christian left. They, they would probably call themselves nonviolent or pacifist and yet turn around and endorse the use of the state uh, to control the economy or, you know, ban guns or whatever it may, may be. But really, that's just outsourcing your violence to somebody else. And really, rather than making that less offensive to God, I would say that makes it more offensive to God. Because now not only are you sinning, you're actually employing an agent in your sin, and thus bringing condemnation on someone else's soul, and so it ends up being uh, even, even worse. So this is where, in my story, I mentioned in the previous episode that I realized, I think it was like the Holy Spirit giving me this little like nudge saying, you need to learn a little bit of economics, because I was kind of leaning a little bit leftward in my theology and something didn't quite make sense and it had to do with yeah but what about and it has to do with everything that we just spent you know a few minutes here talking about um is that we're all on the same plane we're all on the same moral ground we can't there's no exceptions because i have a special privilege uh to to murder somebody or do something else and what really helped me frame the way that it works was understanding economics a little bit more and if you take the state if you take all of us in an economic sort of framework you know economics is not really all about math although that's to some extent you know needs to be done when you do economics but 
it is really about how do social human how do human beings inter- interact socially in the world and not necessarily saying how they ought to act but what happens when they do and what do we observe that's essentially what i learned economics was in sort of a nutshell it's like how do people interact and when you think about institutions that that are that exist in society and you have you know have a firm and that firm might sell something and you have a person who wants to buy it from them and it's a mutual exchange but then you have another institution we call it government or we call it the state and what is that government's role? The economic definition of the state would be a, an institution with a monopoly on violence. The state is the only institution with the authority to enact violence uh, with impunity. Now, obviously, there's that threshold of you know people civilly disobeying that Jason talked about a little bit earlier. But that really helped key in a few things for me. And I've, I've sort of used that when I discuss things with people on the left it gives them more to think about because they're like, oh, yeah, I guess I never thought about the fact that if I'm a pacifist, you know, this group of people I call the government who wants to enact the things that I want to enact, you know, to, to contribute to building the kingdom of God or however they want to phrase it. Um, you know, it gives them some food for thought because you can't, you're right, Nick, you can't be a consistent pacifist and ignore the issues we've just been talking about with, you know, what do you do with the state? It's an institution. Um, you know, progressives like to say that, you know, corporations aren't people, but somehow the state is allowed to get away with immorality. Yeah, I don't I don't buy that. So, yeah, Doug, I, I think when you're uh, referencing the the issue of the state as the only the, the, the only real monopoly, I think that comes from uh, Murray Rothbard said that I don't remember in which of his which of his works, but it is. It is an institution which claims to have a territorial monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. Uh, therefore, it really is the only uh, true monopoly because – so, you know, I always laugh when people and, – and you really see this a lot with uh, conservatives and, and people on the right – say we should run the government like a business. Well, you can't run the government like a business because what other – what business do you know that gets to – uh, point a gun in your face and make you pay for its services. And if you don't like it or don't comply, they throw you in corporate prison or kill you with the corporate firing squad. I mean, no business gets to do that. You know, Walmart doesn't get to barge into your house and say, you have to shop at Walmart or we're going to fine you and imprison you and kill you. So, Government is the only institution that gets away with this, and it's simply because government, you know, rules by by coercion. It rules by fear, and it is able to succeed at this because it convinces people that we need it to protect us from violence. But the government itself is the greatest perpetrator of of violence. So you can't run the government like a business. Businesses depend. On voluntary interaction, capitalism, you know, it, it's the linchpin of capitalism, is serving the consumer. If you don't offer a good product or service at a price that people are willing to pay for, they're not going to buy from you. They're going to go to your competitor, and you're going to go out of business. So the, the free market, it, it forces companies to compete by serving the consumer. The state doesn't serve anyone but itself and it does that through uh coercion you know to 
to think about this in terms of the anarchist versus minarchist debate, you know, we could go on for hours and we would probably want to do that. Um, but we'll probably revisit this in a, in a future episode. One thing that I would want to leave listeners with is think about if you're not convinced that the state should be abolished or if you don't think that the market could do better overall, ask yourself in any particular uh, situation should government be doing this or could there be a better way um, you know Nick was talking about the state using violence to prohibit violence or prevent or punish violence and to some extent if you have violated the non-aggression principle then you are you're kind of agreeing to the terms that okay I'm going to be punished because I was acting violent that's very that's a far stretch from I want to charge a certain price for something and the government says I'm not allowed to charge that or I, I have to charge a certain price for labor because the government says I have to. Well, you can make an argument for the government being legitimate in some areas, but you can't say the government should do everything. Um, and so I would take it you know, piece by piece. Ask yourself, is there a way that the market probably could or even has in the past produced a better outcome even with ones that you're aiming for without needing the coercion of the state because you're probably going to find that either you have a poor imagination and can't come up with something so then start asking some friends or reading libertarianchristians.com because we'll help you out with that or for that matter read jeffrey tucker uh, because he, he's really good at helping people imagine you know um a world where we have all the interactions that are peaceful and it looks beautiful. And you might think to yourself, huh, maybe I don't need to use violence to get the ethical outcomes that I hope happen in society. So as we draw this podcast to a close, I think it's worthwhile to point out that, you know, we do have a really interesting, unique perspective in this current era as Christians as we examine these issues. For the most part, in throughout Christian history, so many of our forebears, as brilliant as they were, as godly as they were, as spiritual and think, good thinking as they were, they frankly didn't have all of the things that we have in front of us right now in order to study and come to potentially more innovative and useful conclusions than, uh, than, than they've been able to in the past. And that doesn't mean that these people did everything wrong. By all rights, they were doing they did a wonderful job in emulating Jesus. And I think that if there's one thing that we would want to get across to you at all as as a listener of this podcast is that when it comes to thinking about how we should interact in, in society today as it pertains to politics, how would you emulate Jesus here? But we also have a unique opportunity as as members of a modern society with information uh, in, almost infinite available to us to learn about economics, political theory, and ethics in, in ways that no one has ever had before. And that's what, in many respects, we're trying to do here is understand how historical theology has played a role, uh, how we can synthesize these ideas together and understand how the interplay of these of evident reason and sound theology make a difference in how we live the, practically in society today as it pertains to politics. 
So with that, I think it's a great uh, great place to stop for now. You you will be sure to hear about this again in the future, and we hope you, that you'll in, send us some, some of your questions as we go forward, and we'll try our best to answer those in future episodes as well. So thanks for listening to the second episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com slash libertarianchristians. You can reach us on Twitter at lciofficial. You can also email us at the address podcast at libertarianchristians.com, and you can visit the show notes page at libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.